Turn with me to the book of 1 John, and we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. Before I get there, I just want to give an encouragement, kind of an amen to Pastor Corey's recommendation and, and um, Pastor AJ's regarding children's ministry. Great stuff is happening next door. Not average stuff. This isn't child care. This is discipleship. And whether you have a child or not, I really want you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit if you would be privileged to be inconvenienced every other week by a three-year-old's needs. Because we're training, we're training world changers over there. And I beg you, don't miss out. Don't possibly miss out on the blessing of your life. It is a real privilege to be able to do that. First John, chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. The title of the message is Three Christmas Witnesses. Three Christmas Witnesses. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with water and with blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Lord, help us as we study. Two things on this passage about which I'd like to speak. One, overcoming what it means for us to take a challenge and see victory wrought from it. And then an outstanding testimony. John is, a, is an interesting writer. He doesn't write like Paul. He doesn't write like Luke. Those are two of the primary authors of the New Testament. He doesn't write like Peter or James. He doesn't give a whole lot of metaphors or similes or analogies to explain what he's trying to say. He just pretty much says it, and he says it in a very deep philosophical way. And then you have to, you have to get out your intellectual shovel and all of your accompanying study books and figure out what in the world is that as evidenced by the fact that what I just read, you're sitting there thinking, I don't know what he means, and I don't know how Pastor Brett is really going to get a Christmas sermon out of this. John states deep theological points in a philosophical way that makes you study, and he intentionally does not give explanation. But he does give clarity, and that clarity should be a kind of a, sign to us that we need to, to figure out how in the world to read better, to understand more. And this is one of the reasons why I preach like I do. I could do topical sermons every week, meaning pick a topic and find about six or seven scriptures that would support my point that I'm trying to make. And that is just as legitimate as any other style of preaching, but I choose not to. I choose to find a passage, stay in the passage, and let other passages that I use support that. Why? Because I have a passion to help you figure out how you can read your Bible every day. I want you to be able to open up the scriptures and say, that's what that means. And to believe that, well, you know, Pastor Breck can figure it out. He, he's just a man. Maybe I could figure some stuff out. Now, I study a lot. I get it. I'm paid to do that. I get that too. But I'm using my moment of information gathering as a leverage point for you so that you can feel empowered, not just educated. Yeah. And I want you to get in this Bible and 
You need, you need to read your Bible every day. And then you need to not just read it, but study it. Here John is, is talking about what it takes to overcome. He who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it is him who overcomes. That person overcomes. And overcoming is to be central to our life. Whether you realize it or not, every day you have to get up and overcome something. The first thing you have to overcome is you. Because you don't want to get out of bed. <laughs> that alarm goes off, you go, uh. So you got, okay, I'm responsible today. I'm not going to be late to work. I'm going to get on that 66 and make it downtown or wherever you got to go. And then you got to overcome all the personalities of work. And then you got to overcome the challenges of your job that they intentionally give you in order to make a profit for the company. And then you got to overcome that your supervisor doesn't really value your, your contribution to the company. And then you got to overcome people who are vying to try to take your accomplishments as their own, steal your successes. And you got to overcome people who are just mad at you and don't like you. And then you got to overcome the other person over there that doesn't know how to shower every other day. And then you got to... <laughs> I mean, there's just so much stuff you've got to overcome every day. And, and you, you, you kind of develop this, this scorecard for yourself. You go home every day thinking, okay, today was better than bad. I got more accomplished than I did not, and so this was a win. And then you really feel when it's a loss, don't you? When you feel like, boy, I should have stayed in bed today. This one, whew, I went backwards. There's nothing that happened good today. Lord, I, and everything within you, although you might not feel like you are trying to gear up to overcome, that's what it is. You're trying to figure out how can I make sure that I don't have a today tomorrow? How can I fix whatever went wrong today so tomorrow is better? It's overcoming. But, but John isn't just speaking about overcoming with respect to your natural circumstances. He's talking about overcoming your spiritual life that is bent toward doing wrong. The heart, the soul, that seems to always want to go left when you should go right. He's talking about overcoming the thing that overcomes everybody. And that is the sinful nature and the enemy that tempts you to gravitate toward it. We overcome by believing that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. There was a doctrine that was floating around in the early church called docetism. And this believed that Jesus really didn't die and he really wasn't human. He was kind of a phantom, maybe a ghost. He came to teach us some things, but their, their, their core foundational belief was that there's no way a pure God would ever dwell in unclean man. They can't exist. There's no way they can coexist. And so they developed a different way of thinking. And it was, it was heresy, wrong as it could be, because Jesus had to be 100% man and 100% God, which makes all of our intellectuals, intellectual thinking just, just break out of the boxes, because how can anything be 200% of anything? But if he's half God, half man, he's neither because if you're half man, you're not all man. And if you're half God, you certainly aren't God. Unto us a child was born who was 100% man. And unto us a son was given from heaven who was 100% God. He gave up his privilege, but he kept his person. If you are God, you can't stop being God. 
You can take on different forms. You can release opportunity. You can say bye to gifting, but you can't lose your person. And Jesus gave away a lot. He was no longer omniscient. He was no longer omnipotent. He was no longer omnipresent. All-knowing, all-powerful, every place at once. He gave up all that to localize himself in a human body. But he was nonetheless God. But as he was God, this passage really focuses on his humanity because he went through everything through which we went. All the temptations we have, he experienced. All the weakness we have, he experienced. All the temptation to doubt that we do, he experienced. Yet he didn't give in to any of it. He had victory over every area, every day, all day. There was not a time he failed. And thus his life becomes an example of what overcoming looks like. It becomes that which we can say, okay, I know how to defeat the devil in this area. I know how to win here. Jesus did it for me. He lives on the inside of me. He can live through me. And if he lives through me well enough, if I give him access to control my life, boy, I can have more, much more victory than I have defeat. And when I do have defeat, it's because I decided to, to take over. I decided that my ideas were better than his. But every time he leads me, I wind up better off. Why? Because he had the best version of overcoming of anybody. He was born of a woman. He actually had to come through humanity in order to get here. And yet he was fully God. Overcoming is based on what you understand about who Jesus is, and that's what John is trying to say here. If he's a phantom to you, if he's just another good man that had a good idea and became a good martyr for a good cause, he's not enough to you. You have to understand exactly who he was and why he came. He came in order to obliterate sin, not to diminish its influence, to obliterate the power of sin. That's why he came. And his entire life of 33 and a half years was focused on that one point. Indeed, his 33 and a half years was, was climaxed at the fact that he died on the cross. But all of the living was so that we would understand something about what it meant to live life at its highest, overcoming. And I don't know that there's a better version for God to, to try to convey with respect to what Merry Christmas means. It's not just the giving of a gift. It's the giving of a life. A man who lived exemplary for our benefit so we could understand what it's like to overcome every day rather than being overcome every day. If you believe what I just said, who Jesus is, you believe that he is the son of almighty God. Yes, he was fully human. But as the Son, this beautiful mystery called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, who, who defer to one another and agree with one another at all times. It's not a New Testament concept that existed in the Old. As we see in Genesis chapter 1, where God begins to talk about what it means to make man, he says, let us make man in our image. Well, with whom is he talking? He's not talking to the angels. We're not made in angelic images. He's talking to himself. Let us make man in our image. And though we can never be ever confused as God, and neither was Adam, even though Adam was all perfect as a man, and so was Eve. 
We can never be confused with God, yet we are made a lot like him in that we are body, soul, and spirit. We have three aspects to us that make us us. Now, that particular metaphor has a lot of holes in it. It doesn't hold water when you talk about the idea of the Trinity because that's very different. But at least it gives us some understanding of how three can be one. Yeah. It's important for you to, to get this because he came as a son, as a positional person. He came from the Godhead into the world as a son. He didn't become a son when he was born. And as a result, he had all of his godness. And that godness helped him with respect to what it means to live right. Now you say, well, you know, his humanity, even though he was tempted like us, he didn't fall. But you know what, isn't it kind of like cheating if he, had, if he was God too? I mean, isn't that like different? You know, you got more power? Yes! That's why he has to do it through you. You can't do it on your own. You will fail. Are you listening to me? It's not like he said, I'm going to do this and you'll never have an opportunity. He said, I'm doing it so you can. As I was, was embodied in, in a human and yet I was God, so I am letting you now have me on the inside of you so you can live right. It's the only way humanity can make it. God's giving you the cheat sheet. Have him live on the inside of you and you can have victory every day. Every day. Now nobody's perfect, I get that. But why do we always have to qualify humanity by saying we're not perfect? Everybody knows that. I would love you to see somebody say, hey, try. Let's try to be perfect, please. And on the way, you just might be the NFL version of 11 and 5. You're 11 and 5, you go to the playoffs. You go to the playoffs. You're ready to win the big game. Hey, you lost five. Do you know the, the New England Patriots, which are the team that's right at the bottom rung of the ladder that I hate the most with Dallas? It's right down there. They vibe for the worst. Last year, they won the Super Bowl. New England Patriots. They lost five games. Oh, quiet, quiet. Don't clap. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you at all. They lost five games. Nobody cares. Nobody even remembers. They won the Super Bowl. But they lost five. Listen to me. I want you to be as obedient as possible, which means never lose. But if you're 11 and 5, I'll take that. I'll take that. But most of us are 0 and 16. We never win. We never win because we don't understand who's living on the inside of us. You want to overcome? You've got to accept this theologically right version of Jesus in your life. Not just him who is here to save you from your sin and forgive you. I love that aspect. I need that. But that's not where it stops. It continues from that to now talk about what it means to overcome every day. Got to believe that he's given you the ability to overcome. Because if you believe it, then you can overcome just everything. Everything that over, trying to overcome you. Secondly, once we understand that we're called to overcome, we have these underpinnings that let us know by way of testimony and confirmation why we are believing correctly. Confirmations of the fact that he really was exactly who he said he is. The water, the blood, and the spirit, these three agree. And they all confirm exactly who he said he was. Water. 
This docetism, this idea about that Jesus wasn't a real man but a phantom, gets unraveled when you understand that Jesus came by water. Now, John is smart, and he does what he can here to try to help people understand how Jesus came. But I think he's speaking about two things in one statement, that the interpretation of this has two meanings, and he's making people dig to get it. So Jesus came by water in two respects. One, that he was born. John wrote not only 1 John, but the Gospel of John, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the last book of the Gospels, the four Gospels. And in chapter 3, there's a conversation between Nicodemus, who is a religious leader of the Jews, and Jesus. This is pretty much at the start of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is having some influence with the Jewish people. The religious leaders don't exactly know mm, how much it's going to influence them and whether Jesus is going to be on their side or not. And so my belief is that they send Nicodemus at night in order to inquire of Christ as to whether maybe can you be on our side. Now other commentators, more smart than me, have said that Nicodemus was coming on the basis of his own desire to want to be with Jesus. And that's why he was coming at night, because he didn't want his, his other compatriots in religious camp to think that he was deserting them. So he needed to do it undercover. That might be the case, but the dialogue sure doesn't point to that. Now, we do know that Nicodemus, at the very end of Christ's life, was a clandestine disciple, a guy who was undercover. He loved him. But nothing about how they conversed in this passage says that he was really inquiring about how to join. He was fighting with Jesus about words. And generally, when you're coming to join somebody, the last thing you want to do is argue with them. So it starts like this. Nicodemus comes and says, good teacher, um, we know you're amazing. No one can do the things that you can do unless they come from God. I mean, you're, you're stunning. Jesus said, by the way, you must be born again. Interrupts him in mid-sentence. Nicodemus is offended. And we know that by what he says next. Well, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't jump a second time into his mama's belly, can he? Now, when you live at the high level of intellect that both of these men lived at, you don't say that if you're trying to have a congenial conversation. That saying this, I think what you said was stupid. I don't agree with that at all. Jesus was trying to help him. He wasn't being sarcastic. He was just getting to the point. I don't need your platitudes. I know why you're here. I'm trying to help you understand a point that will get you right in a hurry. Can we get to the point, please? Jesus doesn't respond in the same way Nicodemus responds to him. He just keeps on the truth. He said, listen, what's born of flesh is flesh, and what's born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I tell you, you must be born again, because you got to come into the kingdom by water and spirit. you got to come into the kingdom by water and spirit. Now, again, many commentators, smarter than me, will say that the water to which Jesus was referring in speaking to Nicodemus deals with baptism, baptism in water. Could be, but I don't think so. The reason being that at that time, as he was speaking to Nicodemus, there was no baptism in water that could aid in the process of regeneration. There was only the baptism of John. And the baptism of John was that which led to repentance, helping people to get their heart prepared for the Messiah. So I don't know that the concept about which Jesus was speaking was that which would be understood by anybody in that day. 
But in the context in which Jesus is speaking, there is something else that would be understood. In that he said, what's born of flesh is flesh, and what's born of spirit is spirit. And so I think he's talking about the difference between natural birth and spiritual birth, rather than the difference between baptism in water and spiritual birth. So he said, what's born of flesh is flesh, what's born of spirit is spirit. How do we get in this world? How did you come onto the planet? Your mother birthed you, but before that happened, you were living on the inside of her in what? Water. The water bursts, and then you come. So that's how everybody has to come here. And seeing that Jesus was talking about was born of flesh is flesh, and was born of spirit is spirit, I think he's staying in concert with that, saying the way you got here is that you were born from flesh, but the way you're going to get to heaven is not how you got here. You have to be born of the spirit. So I think he's talking about natural birth and spiritual birth. Which leads me to the same guy who quoted this passage, his narrative, over to 1 John, which is what we just read. He came by water. And I think he's saying in, 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 in opposition to docetism, he wasn't a phantom. He was actually born. He came naturally by water. He was born of flesh. But he also could be, because now Jesus has risen from the dead and the church is going, it's been decades, he also could be referring to baptism in water and that there is a ritual through which every Christian must go and through which Jesus went in order to signify and solidify something in somebody's life. Ours, baptism in water, is that which reconfirms the, the salvation experience. It doesn't save you, but it does confirm it. With Jesus, he was already anointed as, as the Messiah the king that everybody had been waiting for for, for generations. He'd already been, in, been, been called and, 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 and set apart. But <clears throat> it was improper for any king to print up business cards and just float them around and say, by the way, follow me. You had to have independent confirmation from a spiritual source that allowed other people to put confidence in you that, that, that said, God from heaven is anointing you. That means I can follow you meaning you needed a prophet. And John the Baptist was Jesus' prophet. So Jesus shows up at the River Jordan. John's got a ministry that's the biggest in the nation, huge, thousands of people. Jesus shows up, and uh, he, he says, I, I have need of being baptized. John says, uh-uh, no, dude. Listen, I've been telling all these people, I didn't know who you were. I mean, I knew you. I, we were boys growing up, but I didn't know. I mean, who you are and what I had no... When we were playing Israelites and Egyptians, I get it. Why I needed to be the Egyptian all the time. I get it now. But I'm telling you, I, I didn't know, but I, I recognize now. I get it. I see you. And so because you are who you are, baptize me. I, I want to go under your anointing. Jesus says, uh-uh. We need to fulfill all righteousness here. So the only way for me to be credible to the people is if my prophet says so. So I come under your anointing and your, your grace. Do your job. Jesus gets dunked, not because he needs to with respect to washing away anything, but because that is the anointing that John carries. But God does something independent. Out of heaven comes a dove. That's a teaser for my next point. Actually, two points later confirming who Jesus is. But this is another way that John might be saying that he is legitimate because he subjected himself 
to the institution of baptism when he didn't even have to. And yet, in doing so, he not only came under the authority of the prophet, but God confirmed it out of heaven. You can trust that this one here is somebody that can help you overcome. Secondly, by blood. He actually had blood. Two things here. The blood he had and the blood he shed. He was a human being. He had blood, but his blood was different. It wasn't different in that it wasn't human. It was different that it wasn't tainted. He didn't have the bent that we have to do wrong constantly. We are not sinners because we sin. We are, we are, we are sinners because we're born that way and we prove it when we sin. As evidenced by the fact that you never have to teach your child how to do wrong. I mean, do you have classes on, hey, we're going to have a sin class today. We're going to really perfect this selfishness, okay? Let me show you how to do this. It's amazing. They know about, they know about nature. But you do have to teach them to share. You do have to teach them to be kind. How does that happen if mankind is really good? If we're really good in getting better, how is it that we haven't perfected humanity whereby children come out wanting to share regularly and understanding the fruit of the Spirit from the inside? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. No, no, no. Selfishness, hatred, anger, envy, malice. That's what we have naturally. We are all bent the wrong way. And when we sin, we prove our bent. Jesus is the only one that didn't have that bent. He wasn't born with original sin, the stuff that came from Adam. And we got it naturally because Adam could only produce what he was. God made the rule. Like will beget like. Apple trees produce apples that produce apple trees again. Peach trees produce peaches that produces, produce peach, peaches again. Apples never produce peaches. Adam was a sinner. He could only produce sinners. And that sinner could only produce a sinner. And that sinner, until Brett, could only produce Tellus. We all came in the world like that. Every one of us bent wrong. But Jesus didn't. Somehow, the combination of Mary's XX and the Word of God produced a son that was unlike any other. Human, fully, but not with that bent. Yet, he had the opportunity to fail just like Adam. Adam didn't have this. He was created without the bent. He chose the bent. Jesus could have chosen the bent. He chose not to. That's why we can get victory. His blood wasn't tainted with the wrong. It was pure. But he was all human. But a different kind of humanity than we experience. Not different in terms of nature, different in terms of experience. And what did he do with this life? He lived perfectly. So much so that his blood became that which was so pure it could, it could sp be spilled in, in substitution for ours. That his blood could actually, because it was so clean, cleanse all of humanity. All of humanity. Innocent blood for the first time. For the first time in all of humanity, innocent blood was shed. And it was shed for you. And it was shed for me. These two things allow us to understand the witness of his coming and to give us greater confidence in the fact that we can overcome by this.
bring something on the inside of our soul of strength. Lastly, by the Spirit. That moment with John the Baptist, heavens opened. Dove came out of heaven. You know a dove is just a pigeon, right? I mean, that's an insult to all doves. I get it. That's all it is. It's just a smaller version of a pigeon that's all white. They are the same bird. If you go to a wild pigeon, even the ones that are halfway tame in D.C., <laughs> generally speaking, you get close enough, what are they going to do? Fly away. I mean, even if you got food, if you do this, they're gone. They'll come back because they're hungry. But there is this natural fear of humans that is on all of the creation. Every animal species is naturally afraid of us. And that comes as a result of, of Noah getting out of the ark and God saying, listen, I'm going to put the dread of you upon all of animal creation because now you got to eat them. That's when man began to first eat animals. He's out of the ark. Before that time, all human beings were vegetarians because that's what God said. That I give every plant his food for you. Now, that is not a justification for you to theologically think that anybody who eats animals is wrong. Primarily because the stuff through which we're going now, the nutrients just aren't there like they were back then. So much stuff has happened bad to the planet. I'm not quite sure what we're eating when we eat a, a, a spear of broccoli. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to do the best I can. And I don't have time to, to, to grow my own stuff all, to provide and figure. I don't, I, I just, I'm just a man. I just, I'm just trying to do a job. I just want to go to Safeway and get my food and come home. That's all I want to do. I don't have time to get into all that. My point is this. After the ark experience, the entire planet was flooded, at least where people were. Everything was there, gone. So there were no plants, nothing to eat. And they had exhausted all the resources that they had supplied in the ark. So God said, now you got to eat these. And so the dread of us has been on all the animal kingdom since. And that's in the Bible. Bread didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. So that's why animals flee from you when you come. Nobody has ever seen a dove use a man's head as a branch. Except here. How does that happen except the Holy Spirit abides? Dove came out of heaven. And then if nobody could get it, the father spoke. Hey, this boy here, he's mine. I'm proud of him. He's amazing. Why? Because for 30 years now, he had lived perfectly. And when he had all power and authority, when he had all power and authority to do whatever he wanted, he chose to come under the authority of another flawed human being. So I submit to you, John. Oh. When you can do what you want, say what you want, govern how you want, and you choose to come under another's authority, that's big. And I'm convinced that the Father said, mm, ain't nobody ever done that. That there, that makes me happy. When a man can recognize what needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness, that makes me happy. Even if it means that it costs him some reputation, that makes me happy because I can fix reputation. Spirit of God came on confirmation that this one here and it doesn't say it just came on him it says it remained which meant his movements 
were those that were so smooth and in line with the Holy Spirit that there was no better place for the pigeon and the dove to rest. Kind of not like us. I mean, don't we kind of move jerky? Herky. <laughs> the things we do that are sinful, gosh, it makes the Holy Spirit think twice. Can I abide with you? Look at what, you, look at what you're doing. Look at what you're going. We move wrong. And those little movements make birds fly away. This one abided. And then lastly, it says in Romans 8 that if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead abides in you, he will also raise your mortal body. We have the confidence that not only did the Spirit confirm that Jesus was exactly who he said he was at the beginning of his ministry, but that because the Spirit rose him from the dead, raised him from the dead, it proved that his life was perfect. If he had sinned once, he would have had to die for his own sin on the cross. He would have shed his blood for his own problems. But the fact that he did not sin is confirmed in that he did not stay dead. Death could not hold him because it had no right. Because death only holds those who are affected by sin. Sinners are those affected by it, like the animal kingdom. That's the only ones it could hold. Jesus did not, was not affected by sin, nor did he sin. So death couldn't hold him. Which meant he lived a perfect life, and that meant everything he, listen to me, everything he said was right. Oh, I know he gave some prohibitions on stuff, and you don't like them, so he's right. Because a prophet can't lie. He can't be wrong. Everything he said was right. Everything he did was right. Every motivation of his heart was right, as confirmed by the fact that he, he couldn't stay in the grave. All these three bear witness to this Jesus who gives us the privilege of overcoming. If we believe in him like that, it's a Merry Christmas. I'll close with this. Somebody came to me yesterday. It happens a lot. And, and, and they said that somebody had asked them, why doesn't God just destroy the devil? I mean, what, why in the world doesn't he just take him out? We don't like him. He doesn't like him. Kill him. Just destroy him. He's problematic. Three minutes, Adam and Eve garden, given authority and stewardship over the entire earth. They were to be God on the earth. They were to be representatives of him on the earth. Whatever he said they were to do, and they were to be a mirror image of his actions and words. He put them in the garden and said, I want you to guard it and keep it. I want you to tend it, make it grow, cultivate it, and I want you to make sure you guard it so the stuff that stays in that should be in stays in, and stuff that shouldn't get in doesn't. Guard it. One day he's there with his wife, hanging around this one tree of knowledge of good and evil. The enemy, Satan, who was thrown down out of heaven, we believe in Ezekiel 28, used to be an angel, an archangel named Lucifer. He was in charge, we believe, of worship. Got thrown out because he decided not to give any of the worship to God, but to take it to himself. He, he decided that it would be a, a, a good idea to, to fight with God. Short fight. He got thrown out of heaven. 
and he wound up here. But being here, he had no authority because Adam was made in the image of God and the authority had been given to him. And thus, the serpent was really under Adam. So was the devil. Because in the hierarchy of creation, God put Adam right under him. The angels are below that. Everything else is below humanity. Everything. Because we're made in his image. But the enemy wants influence. And so he goes to Adam and he says, Hey, uh, did God say if you touch this tree, you're surely going to die? Because, like, I'm just thinking, he's got some insecurity problems. He's thinking, like, if you eat of this tree, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want any competition. So he's really, he's really not in your best interest. I'm here to help you become what he won't let you be. He's holding you back, boy. Take of this tree and bite and eat. Eve, with whom the, the serpent was speaking, did so, and Adam was right with her. That's why I speak regarding him talking to Adam, even though it was between Eve, because he was the one responsible. And he was right with her and said nothing. When that happened, Adam and Eve gave up authority to the enemy. They got beat that day. They didn't overcome. Adam should have said, why are you accusing my God to me like that? You can't do that. I have authority over you. Leave. Get out now. Would have been over. Would have been over. He didn't. He succumbed to him, and thus, now that being became his master. And this is why Paul calls Satan, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world, because he took over humanity and the stewardship of the planet. And since then, mankind has been under his influence. God has inserted himself in ways that he could. But to get back to the point... Well, why didn't God just kill the devil? I'm going to share an embarrassing story as I close. I was in the second grade, and there was this kid I didn't like. He didn't like me. We met after school to fight. I was seven. He was eight, and uh, we went at it, and he beat me. It was sad. It was real sad, real sad. Um, I did not know, but his daddy ran a judo shop. His dad was a, a champion black belt guy, and this kid was a brown belt at eight. I wound up on the ground in all kind of twisted shapes. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into. My sister was there. She was two grades behind me. And um, kindergarten or something, I can't remember. And she starts crying. I walk home. She's 20 yards behind me just crying. I get home to Mama. I don't want to tell Mama nothing. But Meredith is still crying. What's wrong, baby? Brett got beat up. <laughs> okay, so when Daddy gets home, Mama tells Daddy, oh, I didn't want to tell Daddy because I knew what was coming. Just say, his son got beat up. What? 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 What would happen today? Got in the fight. You win? No, sir. So what you going to do tomorrow? that's all I heard what you gonna do tomorrow now how appropriate would it have been if my dad when he heard I lost a fight went over to that child's house and beat him up all y'all would think oh, an adult taking an adult taking out a 
child? Oh, what's wrong with that man? Instead, my dad began to encourage me that this was a moment where you need to learn how to overcome. We all want God to take out the devil because we don't want the encouraging moments where he's teaching us how to overcome. We overcome by knowing who Jesus is, the Son of Almighty God. The incarnation is real. Christmas is real. And it's worthy to be given attention to, and he is worthy of our worship. And it's not just the attention we need to give. It's the power he gives to overcome every day because we understand who he is and why we are still on the planet. And these three things give us witness, the blood, the water, and the spirit, that he is who he said he is, and he empowers us to live the way we should here on the planet. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for helping us. There's nobody like you. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Is there anybody uh, this morning, this afternoon, who needs to give the heart to Christ? Maybe you've made a decision in the past, but your life doesn't look anything like what a Christian's ought to be, and you want to make a change today. If you fit in either of those categories, raise your hand high. I'd like to pray for you. Today's a great day to, to make a change, to get right with God. Anybody at all? See that hand? Bless you. Once it's up, you can put it down. Anybody else? I see that hand. Bless you. Once it's up, you can put it down. All right, you who raised your hands, pray with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I've lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege of calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name.